Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to edition number 36 of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Galavan, Galavan, and Omelia, creators of the Digital War Room platform for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is the implications of NSA surveillance for lawyers. Every so often, Sharon and I get impassioned about a topic, and we really want to discuss it at length ourselves. So we didn't invite anybody today to, to call in. We're going to be our own guests as we ponder the ethical and security implications for lawyers of everything we've learned in the past several months about the National Security Agency surveillance, not just of foreign citizens, which we all knew about, but of American citizens who are in no way implicated in any crime. Well, let's start, I guess, by saying that we can only give an abbreviated look at what the NSA, the National Security Agency, as though you didn't know, is up to these days. <laughs> but but it's, certain, it's certainly important for all lawyers to know that the security lands, landscape has changed. And this time it's not because of China. This time it's because of our own government. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, of course, you know about Edward Snowden, an American computer specialist and a former CIA and NSA employee who intentionally disclosed classified details of several top-secret United States and British government mass surveillance programs to the press. And a lot of folks don't seem to know about the British part of this, but they've been working pretty much hand-in-glove with us. So based on information that Mr. Snowden leaked to The Guardian first in May of 2013 while he was employed at NSA contractor Booz Allen Hamilton, that newspaper published a series of exposés that revealed programs such as the interception of United States and European telephone metadata, the PRISM uh, program, X-Keyscore, and Tempora Internet Surveillance programs. So is he a whistleblower or a traitor? Now, that's a, it's a very controversial subject, but in my point of view as an attorney, he exposed massive illegal acts by the United States government. He exposed that the Fourth Amendment has become a mockery, and my own vote is that he is a classic whistleblower in spite of the criminal charges against him. And at least he has done some service by making us have a discussion about the surveillance that was previously hidden in darkness. His own encrypted email service, LavaBit, shut down rather than comply with the government's attempt to get customer information from it. And undoubtedly, the reason they can't talk about it is because they got a national security letter. <laughs> That's a formal gag order. Is that what that is? <laughs> the informal gag order. But it's pretty formal because the penalties are fairly ferocious. So we found out in June that Verizon had been providing virtually all communications traffic data the pen register trap trace data from its Verizon business unit to the National Security Agent pursuant to a secret court order obtained under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, commonly known as FISA, and we'll talk about the, the FISA court. Uh, the order directed Verizon to produce it on an ongoing daily basis all call detail records between the United States and abroad or wholly within the United States, including local telephone calls. Now, this did not mean the content of the calls, but all of the metadata that had to do with the calls. 
And and later we learned of a top secret program of the FBI and, and NSA called PRISM, apparently six years old. And the nine companies named in security documents given to the Washington Post were Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, PalTalk, AOL, Skype, YouTube, and Apple. So apparently there's a lot of data being gathered about us in the name of fighting terrorism, which is our boogeyman of the day. Um, <laughs> it's, it's disingenuous, but the government spokespeople say if you've got to find a needle in a haystack, you have to have the haystack first. I don't like that much, John, do you? No, I really don't. I mean, it's, uh, and, and certainly it's a large amount of data. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the capabilities and some of the things that the NSA, at least the reports that we've, we've now have, have come clear. Uh, it's it's pretty scary that the NSA currently can reach roughly, at least reports say, about 75% of all the U.S. internet traffic. So that's a gathering. How do they go about doing that? Well, you know, Sharon, you already talked about, you know, Verizon supplying some of this information, but it came into being that the uh, they discovered through the Electronic Frontier Foundation lawsuit that an AT&T whistleblower revealed an existence of a secret NSA-controlled room in an AT&T facility in San Francisco. So now you've got the carriers that have provided effectively taps to their backbones for the communication schemes, and that's one of the ways that they can go and gather all this information. Uh, the, the unfortunate part, or the maybe it's fortunate in NSA's eyes, is that it's really, really difficult to try to filter all that stuff out as and only target foreign things, especially when you're talking about internet traffic, because internet traffic, let's say moving between two foreign countries, may in fact come through the United States. Uh, so that's the excuse that's used is they go and they want to grab all that stuff. But some other stats and some other information is back in the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, the FBI, in, in conjunction with the NSA, they arranged with Quest Communications to use intercept equipment for a, pro for a period of less than six months around the time of the event. Um, and reports are that they monitored content of all email and text communications in the Salt Lake City area. Now we're getting into content. This is not that metadata stuff that you were talking about, Sharon, earlier. But something that really is, uh, I guess, has been kind of saving us, and, and I know you say this all the time in our presentations, that it's, it's just the sheer volume that's, that's, that's protecting us. And right now, as best we know, there's about one to two billion records each day that are added to the NSA's database. They have to supposedly delete information in order to free up space so they can't capture a bunch of the stuff, at least uh, large, large volumes of it. Uh, the actual content availability is claimed to be only about three to five days, and metadata is kept for 30 days. But, but John, am I correct in my understanding that the uh, new facility outside of Salt Lake City, I know you're going to talk more about it, but that is intended to store as many as uh, five years of American citizens' communications? Well, it's, that's what some people claim. It's, it's really difficult. And when we get to that, that portion of the, of the podcast, uh, we'll talk about, I'll talk about some of the uh, facility and its sizing and all that. But suffice it to say that it's, it's going to be a lot more than, than what they currently, uh, currently have the ability to store because it, it's huge out there. But we have a lot of incidents as well as what the NSA, the NSA has already, uh, and you know this, Sharon, right? They've, they've already identified through an internal audit that they, they sort of flubbubbed and <laughs> inadvertently uh, captured information that they, they didn't intend to capture, right? Well, and, and they did listen in on, on ex-lovers and prospective lovers and 
all that lover yeah. intel that they were interested in that had nothing to do with any kind of terrorist threat, but their own interest in their own love affairs. Oh, you never know. Though. I mean, some, some of the spies, they do some really, you know, seedy things. You, you can see that on television, right? <laughs> there is a reality <laughs> show. Yes, there is. That's right. Um, but I, I love one of the uh, examples that was given uh, as part of their, their rationale was that in 2008, when they intercepted a large number of calls from the D.C. area, because some human being programmed in the area code 202, <laughs> right, instead of 20, which is the, the international code for Egypt. So it's like, oops, you know, we kind of mussed up. We, we fat fingered something. So that was the excuse there that, that, that uh, they inadvertently captured all this information. But the, the scary part about all, all that is they didn't, uh, they, NSA felt that they didn't have to report that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they're, they're reporting a lot, actually. Yeah, that I think you're. I think you're correct as well that that they're not. But um, I mean, it's just a huge number of of these things, and we're finding as as the days go on, more and more examples of the NSA capturing inf information and and also capturing information from you know for U.S. citizens. But I just want to make an, another point is that what you had said earlier, Sharon, about metadata. I thought this this was a very very interesting uh, a quote where they when they. Uh, an Obama administration official uh, speaking on the condition of, of anonymous uh, uh, comment said that the agency's, this is the NSA's own agency's internal definition of data does not cover metadata. <laughs> and I, and, and as, as we're preparing for this podcast and I'm going through more and more of the, the story and kind of trying to organize the, 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 the information that's there, I, f I found that to be very true pretty much across the board. Uh, as we as we learn of these different uh, events and where people are, uh, the NSA is, is capturing information of, of American citizens, etc. The terms that they use and the definitions they use and what the carriers use and what the ISPs use and what the you know the social media folks use and the terms they don't mean the same. There's, there's there doesn't seem to be a common set of definitions. So when somebody says, you know, give me user data, what does that mean? <laughs> I think it means whatever the NSA says it means, John. Well, okay, could be. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so let's let's talk about um, the NSA and encryption because a lot of lawyers uh, believe that they're safe if they encrypt their data, and they're wondering now, in light of these revelations, if that's really true. So we have some sense now that the NSA is cracking some encryption schemes. We really don't have proof that they are cracking any of the ones that are known to be strong, but certainly they can crack the weaker ones. So that's something that law firms are going to have to look at. We know some companies are effectively giving them back doors, so that's something we're going to have to watch. And, and sometimes they're just going in and persuading companies to share traffic as it occurs. So one of the stories that just came out recently, this was just a couple of weeks ago, RSA warned against use of one of its own encryption algorithms. And it, it actually was based on a mathematical formula developed by the National Security Agency. Now, the question is, was that formula weak because they knew it was weak? Was it weak because somebody screwed up and just didn't do things right? Well, the supposition has largely been among the experts that the NSA conveniently built itself a backdoor and that it intended entirely to be able to go in via that encryption. And it's been known to be weak since it was first published, so a lot of people have avoided it. So we've all become cynics with this, and, and that's, that's sad. We also know that this was just reported in early September that the government has invested in groundbreaking 
crypto analytic capabilities to defeat encryption. And this involves collecting encrypted traffic at internet gateways and from transit oceanic fiber optic cables. And the whole project is named Bull Run, although I personally think it should be more aptly named N-Run, because that's what it is. Um, <laughs> and of course, the, the entire point of the battle Bull Run, and this is kind of funny to me, was that the side who was expected to win did not. And it may well be that the side who expects to win here will not. Um, so the newspapers have said that Google, Yahoo, Hotmail, and Facebook were aiding the NSA, and Google denied that. Phil Zimmerman, who's the founder of P PGP Encryption, Pretty Good Privacy, which is now owned by Symantec, he says he doesn't believe PGP has been broken because much of the government is still running it. So that, that might be true. <laughs> and I think it's very interesting for lawyers to know that the NSA is working with its British counterpart, which is the Government Communications Headquarters. It sounds so benign, and it's known as GCHQ. Uh, when told about how far Na NASA had gone with this bull run program, one memo there said, and this really cracked me up because it's so British and I'm an Anglophile, file. It said those not already brief were gobsmacked. <laughs> so we had, I, love, I love that word. Yeah, sh sh shades of Harry Potter. <laughs> so maybe maybe now we can talk a little bit about that data center because I think that's a pretty scary place. Well, I, I think the other uh, interesting thing too about Zimmerman is, if you recall, when he developed PGP, the government came to him and insisted that he provide a back door to it, and, and he refused. He refused. Yeah, he refused. Yes, he didn't win any popularity contests back then, but he's winning some now with privacy advocates like us. Yeah, well, and he's uh, he's what he's CEO or something of Silent Circle or some yes, other uh, a privacy yes. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and we should say that we understand the need to counter terrorism. We need we understand the need to have checks and balances in any system like the ones we're talking about. But there aren't any checks and balances, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And part of the problem is the old classic: who's watching the watchers? Uh, and the answer appears to be no one. <laughs> yeah, let's talk a little bit about this data center, this new data center for the NSA that's <clears throat> that's out in Utah. It's in a suburb of Salt Lake City, uh, about 30 miles roughly um, outside of the city. Uh, and it's a you can even go to you know Google Earth and see pictures of this thing. It's totally visible from the highway. You know, as you drive along the side of it, you'll see these this massive data center. I'm not sure how far, how much further it's going to go, Sharon, since we've got this big budget crisis now. You know, and the government shut down. Uh, you, you really think the NSA is going to have a problem? I don't know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just watch. We, we can't seem to fund some things, but we can fund this. That, that'll be beautiful. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a $1.2 billion facility. It's at least reported to house computer servers and disks associated with those servers. That's uh, four warehouse-sized data halls that comprise approximately 100,000 square feet. Uh, there's no reports the NSA won't say how many servers it's going to hold, what its capacity is going to be, any of that kind of stuff. So, so some of the folks are kind of guessing at, at what it would be. Um, it's due to come online this, or in September anyway, at least it was reported to. But an NSA spokesman said that they turn on each machine as it's installed, and the facility is just getting ready to begin that installation. That was towards the end of, of September. So, Apparently, they're, they're somewhat on track. Uh, so what that tells me is that they're going to start bringing hardware in. They're going to start turning the switches on, firing them up, and then essentially populating this huge data center with these, uh, these servers. So how big is this thing, and, and what does that mean? Well, 
The complex requires 65 megawatts of electricity, so it's enough to power about 65,000 homes. Uh, with that amount of electricity, calculations are that it would take about 1.5 million gallons of cooling water a day to, to keep it at a proper temperature. Its annual maintenance cost is $20 million to keep that running. So, you know, is there, I don't know if there's a budget line item, right, for, for maintenance of the NSA data center, if, if that, that passed muster. But to your question, though, Sharon, about what, how big is it and how much can they store and, and all that, that other kind of stuff, I really don't know. There was an NSA whistleblower that estimates the capacity, the disk capacity to be five zettabytes. And I had, you know, I love these words. I had, I had no clue what a zettabyte was. I had to go and look it up. But it's two to the 70th power or 10 to the 21st power. In order to bring it down to something that's kind of where people can understand, that's about, it's roughly 1 billion terabytes. So people understand a terabyte today. So they can kind of get their arms around that. Other estimates take the capacity of the data center uh, up to one yottabyte, which is kind of kind of neat. I kind of like that word yottabyte. <laughs> you, you can see, you can see a yottabyte. Yeah, but but it's but it's not spelled like Yoda from Star Wars. So, uh, <laughs> but that, that under, under, understandable. It is not. Yeah. So it's another. You tack another thousand on top of that. So it's ten to the twenty fourth power. So one thousand billion terabytes is is what that ends up being. If if it's going to be that. But then other folks say it can't be that big because the physical size would just be too large. It'd take too, too, many, too much physical space in order to do that. Uh, the scary part, you know, we talk, you talked a little bit about encryption uh, and the data, there's, there's thoughts that perhaps the data is going to be compressed or do whatever, and that's how they're going to get more storage capability there. But there are reports that say that encrypted information that flows into this data center is going to be stored there temporarily for days, weeks, or longer just in case they find a decryption key, they can crack the code later on. So they plan to hold that information for, for you know, a, a lot longer. But essentially, someone described this data center out there in, in Utah as being the NSA's external hard drive, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah, I like, I like that image. So they're, because currently they have, and, and who knew this, right? Uh, currently, there, there are smaller data centers in Hawaii, Colorado, Texas, Georgia, and right in our own backyard, Maryland here. And what this data center is going to be, it's certainly much, much larger, but it's going to be the focal point and they're going to interconnect all these things. So it becomes, again, like this external storage that's out there tapped into the NSA's network so that all this data can be accessible very quickly to all of the security and intelligence people that, you know, uh, in the U.S. Well, and, and just to give you some idea of more data that's going to be collected in here, just three days ago, on, on September the 28th, the New York Times published a really disturbing article about how the NSA is gathering data on social connections of Americans, creating very sophisticated graphs, identifying their associates, their locations, their traveling, companions, and other personal information. And the theory was originally that it was supposed to identify connections with targets overseas and people in the U.S., but now, apparently, they don't have to check the foreignness, don't you love that word, the foreignness of the <laughs> connections. Um, so they can pull data from public, commercial, and other sources, including bank codes, insurance information, Facebook profiles, as well as other social media profiles, passenger manifests, uh, GPS data, property data, tax data, and the list just goes on and on. They call it enrichment data which I think is another charming Orwellian doublespeak term. 
Um, and the decision to get this enrichment data was made in secret without even review by the FISA court. And it's things like this that make John and I crazy. It's just beyond the pale, and nobody is watching the watchers. Right, that's true. Finally, a little bit more on what some of these companies are doing and the cooperation. I know, Sharon, you talked about um, some of the backdoors into the products and, and the, uh, the actual companies that were named uh, to assist that are assisting the NSA. But, you know, are all these guys good or, or do we have some bad guys that are out there? How is, how is the NSA actually getting into here, uh, into, the, into the networks? Um, they, they are tapping. They're using proxy companies, actually in the foreign countries in order to gather data. Uh, there was all that uh, hoopla, as you recall, about uh, gathering data on the German citizens uh, through a proxy company, and then recently information that they're gathering data on the Brazilians. Um, so now you've got the foreign governments that are out there that as this information's come to light, they're starting to get a hands-off attitude, and they don't want to have anything to do with the United States or, or any businesses in the United States because they're, they're not sure whether or not their own information is going to get tapped. But Google is, is pushing back a little bit. Uh, they're encrypting their data. They're, they're actually accelerating. They want to take their data and go end-to-end encryption in an effort to, to keep the, the data more secure and maybe hide it from, from the NSA a little bit. Uh, they started with Gmail back in 2010 to encrypt that. They implemented that. But this whole end-to-end piece, uh, especially since the, uh, the controversy of PRISM has, has come forward, is they're now months ahead of their original deployment schedule, and they should be completed pretty, pretty soon with doing that. You've got other companies like Yahoo, which are trying to be more transparent, and they're at least reporting uh, how many records that requests that they've, they've received. Uh, just this year, they've received over 12,000 requests from the United States. And it's interesting when you, when you look at the stats of where do the, these requests for data come from? The U.S. is number one by a huge margin. Right over over these things, and uh, in, in Yahoo's case, they fight the government back, and this gets into that definition thing. They of of those twelve thousand plus cases, they turned over content in uh, forty six hundred of them, roughly, but using Yahoo's definition of what user content is. So that's communications, whether it's mail or messenger, photos on Flickr, files uploaded, Yahoo address book entries, the calendar entries and events and any thoughts recorded in, in Yahoo Notepad or comments or posts that they've made. So that's what Yahoo considers to be content. And then in almost 6,800 cases, they turned over what they term as non-content data, and that's subscriber information, IP address, those kinds of things, uh, email, you know, date fields to, from, that, that stuff, which a lot of folks may also call that metadata. So it, it gets back to that, that definition again. But we do have some companies that are that are pushing back. You know, you mentioned, Sharon, the, the companies that, uh, that are out there when the NSA came knocking on the door and said that they wanted uh, access to their information. They said, heck no, uh, we're going to shut the doors. And they, they closed up shop. And, and rather than try to comply and, and give up information to the, to the U.S. government. And we're actually seeing a business move of companies who are stating that they are not giving stuff away, not offering back doors. And people, including lawyers, should be thinking about finding out who's cooperating with the government and who is publicly stating that they are not because we may want to move some of our confidential data there. So you want to go to break now, John? Sure. Before we move on, let's uh, take a quick break with a few words from Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Gallivan, Gallivan, Omelia, creators of the digital war room platform for e-discovery. 
Don't be caught unprepared for e-discovery. Digital War Room e-discovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time e-discovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy e-discovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking about the implications of NSA surveillance for lawyers. So let's talk about the model rules of professionalism, especially Rule 1.6. What, what are the implications there? I'm sure that most of the listeners will know that this rule was changed by the American Bar Association's House of Delegates in August of 2012. And the House of Delegates in, in this rule laid out a set of factors. How sensitive is the, the data? How much money and trouble would it be to encrypt it? Did the client waive security? Did they demand it? Are you a little guy? Are you a big law firm? So there's a lot of factors in what you have to do to protect your data. But is what John and I have been asking ourselves, and we don't have a good answer to this question, is what we're lecturing to audiences good enough? I mean, we talk about whole disk encryption, encrypting documents before you send them to the cloud. My own take right now is that it's early days, and I don't think we know what's happening with any precision. And I think we're scanning the horizon to see what new products and services will arise to protect our data. And we really, I'm, I'm leery of predicting, aren't you, John? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in, until we get more and more information about this and, you know, more and more studies on, on how, how secure stuff is. Um, yeah, definitely. So, so, you know, will lawyers be afraid to defend a terrorist or a foreign co- corporation for fear that will paint a bullseye on the law firm's front door? Uh, or network, and and now the NSA is going to be watching them. Who's the enemy? There's a a chilling effect, I think, on some people taking certain cases these days, and that's that's really tough. I I don't yeah. I don't like that at all. And I know that much of what is intended here is intended to be benign and intended to protect the United States. But you know, we have a secret FISA court with strong ties of its members to defense agencies. Are they really neutral? Uh, is this new presidential commission with all these folks who have ties <laughs> to, to the defense industry? I mean, how? Well, at least four to at least four to five aren't neutral. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, and you know, we we have, I think, a president who who means to do the best now. But what if the president were Richard Nixon? I mean, we saw what he did with the IRS. Um, somebody who comes into the government with evil intent. This could be a mess in a whole whole hurry if we had a criminally minded. Uh, president, and they could w- wreak complete havoc on our constitutional rights. And and one just one example that lawyers may not be aware of: Skype is now owned by Microsoft, and now all of your Skype communications are running through Microsoft servers, and right. we know they're accessing content. We've tested and proved it. So what do you tell lawyers about that? Which is my nice segue to I think your next topic about practical advice for lawyers, John. Yeah, but I, but I think the good news about that, you know, we, we I mentioned earlier about transparency and how the companies are they want to be able to tell the public uh, more, give them more information about the kinds of requests that the government is giving to them to for user data. And uh, Microsoft re- just released, I don't know if you saw that, Sharon, the um, 
the stats of, about the request for them. The, the transparency Skype. stats, yeah. Yeah, the transparency stats. And there were there were no requests for any Skype communications. Right. Which I thought was, was interesting. That was interesting. But, you know, what what's true today may not be true tomorrow. Oh, I know, just because they didn't ask for it. Yeah. Well, they, they wait until the reports come out, and then they go and ask the day after. How's that? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one of my questions of giving practical advice for lawyers, John, and, and one we've been hearing a lot of is they've been asking, should I, should I move my data out of the United States specifically to the EU, not Britain, which of course has been tarred and feathered with the United States, but they've been seriously asking whether that's something they should look into. I, I don't think so. I think that's kind of overreactionary, at least at this point. Some of the, some of the things I think that we, we need to be able to do is I think encryption is still good and it's a good way to protect your information. Um, certainly not using those things, as you had mentioned earlier, Sharon, the, the same um, encryption scheme that the, uh, the RSA had in, in a couple of their products that, that are known to be weak, but certainly the, uh, the tried and true, the more trusted uh, encryption schemes, the, that that's what we ought to be using, at least as a, as a baseline, uh, making sure that we've got you know, strong passwords and not the same password across everything. So it's, it's just the general security things I think you need to be, to be aware of there. But also understand what what information and what is possible. So you know, even listening to this podcast, that understanding that it is possible for somebody to potentially tap your conversation from your cell phone or intercept your text messages, those kinds of things. So you need to understand and know what is technically possible, and then take steps to protect that data if that's the way you want to communicate, or don't use that communication method at all. You know, text messaging, forget text messaging. You know, let's, let's put our confidential information into a, into a document and then encrypt that document and, get, and send that to somebody. So those, I think, are some of the practical things. I wouldn't go offshore. I think that brings just too much baggage with it right now, you know, as far as moving your data goes. Certainly, I think a practical side is kind of retrenching uh, from, from cloud providers because, if you're out there with your case management systems or or any of the cloud providing services that are out there, the Dropboxes of the world and the the Google Drives and SkyDrive and this kind of thing, it's outside of your control. So what has our government, what abilities do they have to gain access to that data? Um, you have to be concerned with that. So I would suggest that we, we, we suck in data and, and have more data, if you will, in our own control have email in our own control, you know, host your own email server instead of hosting external, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Well, that makes, that makes good sense to me. And I, I, think, um, I, I think one of the funniest stories we've heard with relation to this just came out yesterday, uh, and it involved John McAfee, who is certainly the original wild child, <laughs> as one newspaper story called him. Um, the former owner of McAfee, he is now 68 years old. He has a 30-year-old wife who was formerly a stripper. He has now punked up his black hair and frosted it blonde. And, of course, he remains wanted as a person of interest in the shooting death of his neighbor. So, last Saturday, he uh, entered this crazy story of ours by saying that he was developing a gadget to thwart the NSA that would cost less than $100. He calls this device, which, by the way, has not yet been built, uh, Decentral. (laughs) And what it means is that devices would communicate with other devices, creating decentralized floating and moving networks. He said it would be compatible with iPhones and Androids and would have a city range of three blocks, not much, and a quarter mile in the country. 
And so it would create a small private network to allow people to secretly swap <laughs> files without being on the main Internet backbone. Now, I can certainly see how criminals and pedophiles might use this, but I sure don't see that it has a practical uh, use for businesses. Do you, John? No, I really don't. It's, it's, it's essentially just a small little personal network, you know, and, and if he says a quarter mile in a country, you know, or three city blocks, he obviously hasn't been in New York City, man. Three city blocks there. Is <laughs> it like, is a quarter of a mile. <laughs> oh, man, that's a boatload distance there. Um, but uh, it's, it's really the device, at least as near as I can tell from the descriptions that we've, we've seen and read about, is that it's, it's really a personal, call it a personal hotspot. Yeah. So you're you're limited to the devices that can connect to that spot, that hotspot. Uh, you can't get on the public internet. You can't use Facebook. You can't use any of those things um, in order to connect up somewhere else, uh, because then then you're at risk for that traffic. So I, I don't I don't see much of the, the practicality of it. Um, it's really doesn't seem to be much different than you know, you securing your own wireless connection in your office or, or e even having, you know, hardware connections to everything and, and creating a peer-to-peer -peer network among all your computers. That's really kind of what it is. Well, as, as you will remember, John, uh, John McAfee always said that his favorite drug was psychedelic mushrooms. Maybe he's gone back to his old habits. <laughs> I, he, 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 he may have popped a few before he made this announcement. Who knows? <laughs> well, he had an enthused audience, that's for sure. So I don't know. Our, is 1984 here? The the book, as you know, was was written back in the, um, 1949. Uh, uh, did, did George Orwell just get it wrong by a couple of decades? Is, is that all that happened? Well, I, I think probably by a couple of decades and, and, all, and certainly as far as capabilities go. I, I think today uh, there's so much more information that's being captured and monitored than, than what I think Orwell even thought <laughs> what was possible. Um, you know, and, and the independence of all this stuff. I mean, it's really it's disturbing. You know, you mentioned about the you know, the, the White House panel, uh, you know, and, and there's serious doubts about the independence of that panel, you know, taking a look at this. And, you know, I kind of joked about four out of five, you know, we, we know aren't independent because they've had long histories in government, you know, or in, in the intelligence community. So that already draws suspicions there. You know, I, I have personal doubts as well for the future because NSA has paid millions of dollars to cover costs to these, to the providers, to the carriers, et cetera, in order to gain access to this data. And in order to comply with the, um, you know, the FISA auth authorizations. So there, there's almost like there's a part of the skin is, is, is of these companies is in there, mm -hmm. right? Because they're supposedly getting reimbursement. But we've got, we've got this disconnect, though. The NSA says that they, they paid millions of dollars to reimburse, uh, you know, companies like uh, Google and Facebook and, and Microsoft. But yet you read the statements of, of those folks, and they say no, not at all. They've never been re reimbursed by by any of those uh, those companies. I mean, I love Microsoft's statement. It says Microsoft only complies with court orders because it's, because it's legally ordered to, not because it is reimbursed for the work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that that may come too. <laughs> and, and and you know, and, and if you can believe Mike Zuckerberg, I mean, he's he's a he's a pillar of truth. Um, he says they've never received any, Facebook has never received any compensation in connection with responding to a government data request. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I believe that or not, uh, but still that's. Well, you, when, if you, when, if you can operate though and make your mega millions, mega billions, uh, and they leave you alone, if, if you simply hand them the keys to the castle, I think the inclination of many companies has been 
to hand them the keys to the castle and laugh all the way to the bank, which is unfortunate for the Fourth Amendment, but it seems to be the way American capitalism is going. I think I think you're probably right. And we and we probably need to bring this to a close here because yes, we've ma'am. been talking. We we have been impassioned, as everybody <laughs> listening to us can tell. Uh, we really don't know what's going to happen, and we do tell everybody that if you if you're not in the habit of going to security sessions uh, for CLE, you certainly want to keep doing that over the next. Well, you want to do it forever, but certainly we're going to have a lot of changes and recommendations over the next year. That's clear, if nothing else is. Uh, and my my. Uh, amusing moment of the day was seeing that China said that it is worried because although it's wonderful at cyber offense, apparently it wasn't quite prepared for the American um, to, to be a, a cyber defensive country in light of what the Americans are now doing. So, um, <laughs> ah, gee, guys, that's too bad. I really feel for you. <laughs> so bring us home, John. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics, Technology, and Security Services at Sensei, S-E-N-S-E-I-E-N-T.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.